Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode 188. We're joining you every week to talk IT progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore on Twitter, joined by my co-host, John White, at VJourneyman. Hey John, how's it going? Hey Nick, I'm doing great. Just want to remind everybody that we are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Great, John. Really appreciate that. This is part two of what we're calling the Joe Hughes Trilogy. And in order to know what's next, let's talk about what came in episode 187 in part one. We talked about how Joe stumbled into technology. He was an Air Force veteran and got early experience in the manufacturing industry. He also worked with family members, and that was an interesting dynamic. Joe did some relocation and even got sales experience in the retail space. Learned a lot. And then he found a company whose mission really resonated. And that brings us to part two. What's going to happen this week, John? What stood out to you? Yeah, a couple of things I wanted to kind of signpost for people, you know, heading into the episode. One was the impact that joining a community had on Joe's career and just on his, you know, person in general. There's also another interesting uh, callback to the generalist specialist divide and a shout out to uh, Don Jones and his uh, writings on technical careers. How about you, Nick? Anything uh, jump out? I like the discussion we had with Joe about technology ways and, and surfing them. And then it was also interesting to hear about how doing things at scale impacted the way he was able to think through problems and systems. But before we give too much away, let's go ahead and kick it to part two of our discussion with Joe Hughes. Since you mentioned community, where was the tipping point that actually made you jump into a technical community? Since we're talking about people networking, I think that's a natural segue. The the thing that made me jump into the tech community would have been probably back in, oh man, I think 2000, either 2008 or 2009. I would actually have to go dig through my notes. And I, I keep meaning to go look this up because I, I tell the story often enough that I should at least remember what year that it was by now. But I showed up for my first VMUG event and it was at a hotel that was downtown. I walked in the door from the parking garage and was just looking around to try and find a sign or figure out where I was going or something. And I had somebody who was walking down the hall and said, ah, you look like a nerd. You're looking for us. And I was like, what, what, who, what? So I had the, the typical like overloaded backpack full of stuff. I think still had either like a, a paper notebook or a paper notebook and like a textbook or a, a, a certification book in my hand, right? And was, it was walking in to go try and find where the VMUG event was for my first uh, user con that was there. And it was two of the original V experts that basically just said like, hey, come with us, we'll introduce you to everybody. So there was the one who was the social guy who was like, 
come with me. I'll teach you everything you need to know about connecting with people. And you can find all the answers you need here today. And, and if somebody doesn't know it, chances are you can turn around and ask this guy. He wrote the book. And I was like, oh, ha, ha, ha. I've, you know, I've, I've heard that. And he goes, no, really? Like, here's the copy of my book. You can buy it on Amazon and pulls it out of his backpack. And I was like, whoa, what have I just walked into here? Right. So it was just the fact that I heard there was an event. It was tech that I wanted to get involved with and wanted to start learning. That was not something I was doing at work. And I walked in the door and the first social person that saw me just latched on and dragged me along. That's fascinating. So you were going to this VMUG, that's the VMware user group, because you were aspiring to work in that area of technology, not because you actually were already working with it? Right. We didn't have it at work. I thought it was going to end up coming into our workplace when I was at, at the company that I worked at at the time. So I wanted to kind of get ahead of it because my thought was if I can be the first person to learn this, even though I was at an org where like I did shipping and receiving, I did inventory at the time. I was like the webmaster, but was not officially the IT person. We had somebody at our headquarters office that did IT, but they were like a friend of the manager of the company and did it on the side. So I was like, here's my place that I can solidify myself if I'm the first one to learn this technology that I can put it in our org and ended up getting rift from the company anyway. But <laughs> having walked in and having been interested in it, it helped me land my next job. And I already knew people when I, when I jumped into the deep end and being responsible for this technology that I didn't know other than playing around with it in a home lab. I had a whole network of people that I could reach out to when I had questions. Yeah, that's important. Having some backstops for help when you have questions because sometimes the expertise is not something you can get from your coworkers. They may not have the expertise either. Absolutely. And I mean, this was back in the days when there were two or three forums that I was aware of that I could possibly go ask questions of other people on this tech. And it was essentially hoping that Somebody knew what I was asking about, somebody had worked with it, and somebody was willing to help somebody else out on this because there was not a lot for the documentation or I was not involved enough in the VMware community to know what existed outside of the things that I had been comfortable and familiar with in some of the other forums and technology circles that I'd been part of. So taking on a, two, a whole new technology, I didn't know where to go. Yeah, I can see how... Being a part of a community would be a pretty, a pretty critical advantage when you're in a situation like that. So that learning about VMware, going to VMware user group, helped bridge you into a new position where that was going to be one of your primary responsibilities or in a portfolio of things that you were going to have to look after? No, it was it was moving me to an org where that was going to be one of my primary responsibilities. It was it was me moving into a role where VMware was still coming into the organization, but when I was interviewing and when I was getting hired on, even the fact that I had played with it in a home lab and could even explain the technology better than the other people that worked there at the company and they said like, "Oh, that's really interesting. We don't know if that's right or wrong, but it's cool that you understand any of this and can even try and explain to us what it is while we're asking you the question of if you've had any experience with this. I think the fact that I had taken it upon myself to learn any of it and had even played with it at any level that was me doing it outside of my day job was probably what actually ended up landing me the role because the the IT department 
was just looking for anybody that could come in and do tech. It wasn't until I actually sat and had an interview with the president at the credit union that I was joining at that he was like, wait, you do this on the side? And I was like, well, kind of. It was like, it seemed fun and it was something that I knew was going to come into work. So if it made my work life easier, then I was willing to put in some time to to do it on the side. And is that something that the members of the community that you met encouraged you to do or something you thought would be a good idea on your own? I, I find that there's a mixed bag when when polling for that. I don't I don't think everybody number one is motivated to do that and number two realizes that it can help you stand out and or be used as relatable experience in an interview, just like you mentioned. It was probably just about fifty fifty with people that said oh no, once you get into this, you're going to only end up with jobs where this is part of your primary responsibility. You're going to be working with this technology enough in the next couple of years that you don't need to do anything on the side. You're going to see more than enough of it. And there were other people that were like, oh, you also like to tinker with stuff and oh, you've worked at CompUSA and built your own computer. Then you absolutely need to go grab all the components, build a home lab, do it to the nth degree, and then blog about it and tell everybody else. The people that, that, figured that I would get the exposure in my company. We're just saying it's going to be such a big part of what you do. You don't need to do any extra on it. Whereas the people that encouraged it were like, go overboard. That's fascinating. It actually is an interesting lesson that I, I think that it's been a while since somebody talked about this to us, which is like catch the early part of a technology wave. Right. And that can help take you to, any number of positions if the wave ends up being big enough and you're on the front part of it then it can take you really really far in your career but you have to catch the right wave <laughs> that's that's part of it is is catch the right wave and i heard it put really well in a good video that was on youtube a couple months ago um David Bombal, who's one of the big uh, Cisco trainers and does a lot of stuff with development as well, and is is a pretty good person to watch for even just some of the career trajectory stuff. He's very open about a lot of the things that he's done in his career and and the level of depth to which he's gotten into some of the technologies. And he had a really good video at the beginning of this year where he was talking about for all the work that he did for, you know, 10 plus years in like Cisco with IP telephony, he was like, now there's Zoom and there's other things, right? It's it's just you catch the right technology at the right time and it's just going to change the world. Or it's the fact that when you do ride the technology waves, at least be aware of the things that are out there. And then if you've ridden a wave to the point that you see that it's cresting or peaking or it's, it's you know, on the downswing or it's to the point that you're not interested in it anymore, then pick something else. Yeah, if you're playing Nerd Journey Bingo, that was episode 80 with Manny Sadu, John, is what you were referencing before. That's exactly what I was thinking of, yeah. I like that idea of transitioning to a different wave if it's no longer interesting. You know, people have have talked about on the show losing that love or the excitement for what they're doing and that kind of contributing to burnout. So I think... I think that's important to to follow the interest and excitement. I like that. Well, and there's there's some interesting things that I've followed, especially in the last couple of years. Like I've I've taken a lot of 
hard looks at things that I've done in my career and in things that I want to do in my career or things that I want to legitimately just be involved in and help influence for other people. And a decent amount of this stuff I've taken from teachings that came from uh, Don Jones, who was a huge PowerShell trainer. He wrote a book that was Be the Master, right? And a lot of it was based on his experience that he had coming out of school and working as a civilian contractor for the Navy, working in a machine shop. It's it's all about bringing the apprentice journeyman master uh, concept to technology, right? Because that's existed for for so many trades forever, and it's not something that we think about in the way that we're doing tech and how we should be helping empower and train other people to to help them on their journey instead of just kind of leaving everybody to fend for themselves somewhat. But some of it just looking at a lot of the, I don't want to say common sense, but at least things that are much more easily grasped in other fields that are not technology a lot of people would understand if you were to fall back to like even one of the quotes for like the jack of all trades, right? A jack of all trades is a master of none, but oftentimes is better than a master of one. That's something that a lot of people forget in their tech career. Because if you really get specialized in something, it's not necessarily a bad thing unless you get to the point that you only do that one thing really well. Because that can be really good for your career if you become an expert in that focus, but you're either going to have to be willing to like potentially move to a larger org or to a different role where there's an opportunity to be dedicated on that single focus. And then at some point you might be the master of all things, Cisco IP telephony, and then zoom comes along. Right. I mean, if there's, if there's a thing that comes along in the market or that is an, a technology that's adopted by people that's free or easier to use or is, something that can be accessible and utilized by everybody without needing somebody that is a subject matter expert in something. It's a hard sales pitch to need that specialty in that one thing. Or just the fact that you're no longer like conversational and all the topics and all the technologies, then you kind of have worked yourself into a niche where sometimes it can be hard to get out of that rather than just going deeper and deeper into being skilled in that one thing. So to that point, Joe, it sounds like some of that might be it's not extremely hard for someone who's a generalist to get super specialized, but it might be harder for the super specialized, hyper-focused individual to come back to a more generalized approach. Is that what is that what you're saying or am I misunderstanding? No, I would I would say that that is the case for a lot of people that have become super focused in, in things. They a lot of times stop watching the other waves in technology or they stop really being aware of other things that are coming and going. And to me, it should just be a goal for everybody to at least be aware of, of other adjacent technology to what it is that they're working on. And it's, it's, it's a balancing act, right? Because it's, it's easy for generalists to fall into roles of being the firefighters or the, the, you know, backfill for like help desk or overflow for whenever people are too busy and they just need to throw anybody into the mix on these things or management fodder. When people are asked why things don't get done on time or on budget or, or things like that. Whereas that's probably not going to be a thing that's asked of somebody who's known to be a specialist, but when technology changes, unless you are a specialist in something that is relatable or something that's easily translatable to the new technology, 
then it's harder for you to pick up on those things a lot of times than a generalist who's been aware of it or maybe has taken the time to go play with some new tech. I think that maybe the skill that we're reaching for here is the idea of, I mean, we're talking about waves, I guess, like the perfect analogy is that of the surfer. Like the surfer like rides a wave, but is like the expertise that the surfer has is riding waves, not a wave. Right. And never loses track of the surroundings and you know the fact that they're going to have to hop off this one and hop on another one and and obviously like technology waves are not as ephemeral as ocean waves and you might be involved in three or four or maybe five like big ones in your career but that doesn't mean that you can't move around within that if you're in virtualization you know you maybe you were in virtualization and you're you focused on the storage layer for a little while and then maybe you hopped over to the network layer and then maybe the security layer and then maybe back over to storage, you know, but in a different capacity, you know, like with a different aspect of technology that I think is like pretty valuable. Like, and it's not something that I've really thought about is the idea of like, you know, going slightly deeper and then pulling back and being a little bit more general and then going slightly deeper and then pulling back and being a little bit more general which is, you know, kind of what we do on a day-to-day basis in pre-sales. It's like, okay, this is what my customer needs right now. I'm going to, you know, spin up on that. And then we pull back and then, okay, now this is, you know, something, you know, different, some different aspect of the technology that I work on my customer needs. So I spin up on that. So it's, it's a very interesting perspective for you to bring up. And it's an interesting pattern. We'll have to, we'll have to add that to the pattern catalog. And that's just <laughs> systems administration, John. Exactly what you described. Go deep on yep. X to fix the problem and pull back. It, yep. I, f- I have this theory that only the person who has been a generalist at some point can actually understand when the right time to pull back is. If I've been hyper-focused my whole life, then I'm just not going to be able to probably sense that. But because I've had the generalist mindset, at least for a time... My theory is that th- there'll be a, oh, I actually need to pull back from this and see the bigger picture now or focus on something else. Kind of be responsible for a large, complex system yes. where there's a bunch of different moving parts and then you have to like maybe focus in on one part and then pull back and worry about the entire system and then focus in on a, one part. So, you know, the traditional like Unix system administrator who you were talking about there needs to worry about back in the day, it was like, okay, this mounting different SCSI drives, you know, or mounting network drives or worrying about the networking or, you know, the startup shutdown sequence or the software that was actually the application that was installed on the system. So, you know, any one of those is like, you know, you could go deep for a couple of weeks, but then obviously the overall responsibility is for the overall system or group of systems and not any one of those individual things is like, hey, your networking is working great. Yeah, but the application doesn't work. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, and there's there's a lot of different things there, right? So yeah, it's I, I would absolutely say that it's the generalist or sometimes even just people that have had to do a decent amount of troubleshooting in their past that know when it's time to say, okay, either this is done or even just this is good enough and I can move on to something else. Or sometimes it's just us understanding our personalities and 
if it's sufficiently complete for your brain to actually disengage and not continue thinking about this thing for the next three weeks. Cause I know I've had that situation many times in my life where I kept wondering like, well, what would have happened if I would have just tried this other thing or this other thing or this other thing. So it's first, one thing I don't want to miss like to John's analogy of the surfer, it's not only the ability to ride the waves multiples and understand one is going to go down and there's going to be another one. But I would say one of the things that a lot of us in technology should aspire to that that we miss in that visualization probably is the fact that that surfer enjoys absolutely every minute of whatever it is, right? The one wave to the next or or even just the anticipation and the waiting for the next wave or the driving to go catch the waves or the night before when they're going to get up early to go hit the waves, whatever it is, right? They're always essentially in the moment that that they understand that is something that that feeds and drives them and they're always focused on it and appreciative of whatever it is, right? And I feel like that's one of the things that a lot of us in technology, especially those of us that have been in it for a long time, lose is just the passion or the, I don't know, fun and somewhat inspiration we get from seeing the new tech, you know? I mean, still talking to people about like the first time that I saw of emotion, I was like, so cool. And I tried to explain it to non-tech friends and they were like, yeah, okay, what, whatever. But it's like, you, you never want to to lose that or, or, or yeah, like I noticed in, uh, in some of the notes, you know, you guys had, uh, mentioned having talked to Andrew Miller in the past. Absolutely love that dude. And, and he talks about, you know, not selling your technical soul. It's like, you, you've got to have that one little at least grain of inspiration that you still carry around about being associated with the technology and if it's to the point that it's not fun anymore, then either do something else or just get out of tech. And that's that's one thing I think a lot of us lose is that when we're doing these things and when we're riding this technology wave, we should hopefully get some enjoyment out of it at the time. And if not, then we should really question what it is that we're doing here. But it's a thing that a lot of people in technology miss just as a basic concept. Your job belongs to your employer and your career belongs to you. You are the one that's in the driver's seat. You are the one that can make the decisions to take a different role or to go move somewhere else or try out different things, whether it's something that your employer backs you doing at the job or something you're doing on your own because you have the drive to do it and and think that it's something that's worth your time and investment. But a lot of people just don't ever get to grasp that concept and take responsibility, I guess, for whatever it is that they're doing next. And a lot of us in tech, especially those of us that have been in it for a long time, I feel like we're we're not dismissive, but we're not as analytical at how quickly these cycles are coming compared to what they used to be in the past, right? The technology change is a lot faster now, or it's to the point that the adoption of the technology gets to the point that you could have started out as a specialist in something five years ago, and you were probably safe being a specialist of that for another three years or something. Now, if you become a specialist in something, there might be a chance that in a year or two, it's commoditized enough that nobody else needs that specialist, right? It's just become so easy or it's become so commonplace. Everybody's acceptable with what used to be the level of specialty that was required that everybody now has a base skill set for that. No, that's a really, really good point. There's probably people people who are retiring today who spent their entire careers working on Unix systems and then virtualization within like technical organizations. 
and that's all they needed. That was two things. You know, maybe they caught caught like the the tail end of I don't know, like AS four hundred or something like that, right? And that transition from AS four hundred to to Unix. But other than that, like you know, th- those are the two main platforms, and they you know rode expertise to those two platforms to an entire career. Well, I think that might not be good enough. It might not be two things that you need to know, <laughs> you know, for any given career. I, I don't think anybody in this day and age is going to make the right pick for being the current iteration of a COBOL developer where you're still going to be paid to do that job to the degree that some of those folks are now in like their 70s because there's absolutely nobody else to do it. And somebody is so dependent on that technology that they will continue to pay obscene amounts of money for that. I just don't think that the chances of you ending up in that role, in that technology, in that organization, or or in a tech that stays around for that much longer anymore is a dwindling market. You know, we have phrases now like technical debt, where it's maybe not exactly uh, an anal- analytical measure, but it's at least a recognized concept that the more time we put into invest investing into that technology, the more behind we are because we know that we have to get off of it. So tying ourselves to it is putting us behind and we're going to have to pay for that later. So maybe organizations are actually measuring, you know, at this point, like the amount of technical debt that they have, or at least uh, some kind of soft measure. I, I remember seeing a, uh, a headline recently about from FedEx saying that they were going to be off of mainframes in the next, you know, two or three years, right? So they realize that they have all this technical debt in mainframes and they are, they've made the decision to pay down that debt now <laughs> and it's getting, getting out of it. I think that's, it's, it's a fairly recent concept. Technical debt is not something that I ever, you know, heard in, in like it's, it's really emerged in the last 10 or 15 years and it wasn't really something that I heard before that. Now that might be my fault, but. Well, and I think you can have technical debt from a career perspective too, if you've lost sight of what the trends are and, you know, not just, not just an organization, but you personally like, oh, I've got this technical debt because I'm short on these five skills that I need to have to really be relevant in this job market. So my uh, Ethernet cable termination skills, not still relevant. I can't, I can't make $50 an hour doing that anymore. No, but you could not pay somebody else when you're running the cabling for your new house. Like I, I had to dust off that skill for, you know, a while, but then after a week it was put back in a box. <laughs> <laughs> if if you don't mind, Joe, since we're, we kind of delved into generalist specialist, I think that's a good time to talk about your specialties because you were kind of general IT, systems administration, virtualization, a bit of all the things. And then there was a point where you started getting into some specifics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I really started getting into specifics, I would say about the time that I started working in a couple of larger environments that had some larger data centers because we were working with systems that were large enough, or I was on large enough teams that we just had the mindset that people should be specialized in whatever technology that they're focused on, or at least be the primary person that has 
the most even general knowledge about what's going on. So they could be the point person for a specific technology. And it was also at the same time that we were essentially kind of the point person for a particular department of the organization that we supported. So that was what really started me down the path of, I was the go-to for virtualization just because I had the experience in it in the past, but I was trying to hand that over to somebody else that was actually at the time that I was getting into becoming the primary for doing uh, Microsoft System Center Config Manager, SCCM. So that was dealing with desktop deployments. And that was a different shift to going from dealing with individual systems or even individual servers and individual desktops in an organization to being someplace where I was responsible for being the primary for patching for like 25,000 workstations. So having to start think about things at those different levels where we had defined roles or at least defined primary responsibilities gave me a lot more of the concepts of thinking about things in systems fashion. And basically this is what I needed to do, but I also needed to be aware of what other things people were doing and what effects my changes or my responsibilities had on somebody else and what theirs had on me. So a lot of that, I was actually able to fall back on things that I had learned way back in the day from, from the uh, manufacturing organization to at least be aware and, and conversational and be invested enough in what other people were doing to understand how it affected my role. Investing in those interfaces with other departments. That's uh that's another thing that's come up a couple different times. It's another interesting pattern people that you have to interface with. And I think you said it in a very interesting way, like the decisions that you make and how it impacts kind of maybe upstream, downstream, and other teams that you might not even understand, like how your decisions are you know, impacting. So Microsoft System Center, that is like a little bit different from like the virtualization. What was it that like got you down that path? you know, kind of focusing on desktops or was that just like, Hey, here's what you're going to do. It was, it was an opportunity that was there. Um, the person that was responsible for it at the time kind of didn't want to deal with an upgrade, uh, because that was, he was a person who had put it in back in the SMS days and was dealing with it as SCCM 2007 at the time. And when we were getting ready even just knowing at this organization that like we had an upgrade planned a year out to go to 2012, uh, he kind of didn't want to be responsible for it anymore. He wasn't, he wasn't really enjoying the role and he was even getting out of being on our systems administration team and moving over to the networking team. And I had worked very well with this guy. He and I butted heads instantaneously. Like the first time we met each other and five minutes later, we were like best friends but he had also been somebody that had a fairly similar career trajectory as me. He just had it all at one organization. He had started out as a contractor that was running cable and became like the top system administrator we had at our hospital network that was there. So when he told me, I'm kind of bored with this, but knowing you and knowing how much you like to tinker and especially trying to put things together with all the automation stuff you're trying to do, this is probably going to be the best role for you to do that. So he kind of said, if you want it, I'll hand it over and you can be the primary for it. And that kicked me into a lot of things where I was already working around with automation and PowerShell at the time. So it was kind of a logical fit for me. Interesting. So it was, it was more about the PowerShell and the automation than about 
the fact that it was working on desktops in particular. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I, I mean, if it would have been a different function that I would have been doing PowerShell automation or creating the, the packages themselves, but not dealing with the patching or things like that, there were certain aspects of the role that really had me interested in it. And other stuff was just what came along as a required duty. Got it. Got it. There's something to getting the at bat at that kind of scale that really changes a trajectory because not everybody can say I worked on automating patches for 25,000 machines. That's a little bit different than 250 or 25. The, the scaling, the skill set, but also scaling your thinking a little bit is, is what comes to my mind. Yeah. Some of it, like it comes down to a lot of different things. I would say at that level, it's, are you are you still a generalist at that level and get to touch a lot of things because for some organizations you still have the opportunity to touch a lot of tech if you want in other organizations you don't have the opportunity to do it at that scale you are the primary for one thing or the secondary for another or the standards that they have defined or just the the security restrictions of things you're locked out of doing more than a handful of of job functions and some of it can require a decent amount of experience to do it well, or a lot of times it's either like done efficiently or it's done correctly the first time. And like a lot of times we get the efficiency because we don't necessarily do it that well, but we've done it enough times because we keep having to fix things that we get better at, at the small incremental changes and things that we're doing. Or a lot of it is, is putting in the time and the effort to do things well the first time. Right. And it's the it's it's a mix of the individual, the organization, whatever standards and whatever team structure there is for it. But being ready to take the at bat that you get at that level sometimes comes down to just am I confident in my skills? Am I okay with the fact that I may actually have to go ask somebody for help or I may have to potentially apologize because I did something incorrectly, whether I, I should have known ahead of time or not? And then what is the organization structure with your team as far as having support from other people to do something new at that level or your management to say that we understand that you're going to be kind of learning on the job so it's it's right place right mindset right time i would say is kind of the the key combination for a lot of people because normally at least one of those things is not to where people feel confident or comfortable to just take on an opportunity like that. And a lot of us, unfortunately, are too stuck on not knowing the answer, not realizing that every one of us doesn't know until we've done it the first time. Until you get the chance of the at-bat. It's like a it's like circular logic almost, but I, uh, I get it. And there's also an element of the, like you said, the understanding from the organization standpoint that someone's learning how to do this. And it's new to that person. And was it Tom Limoncelli who said, if a process or procedure seems risky, do it often. And because you do it so frequently, you will eventually de-risk the entire process in the course of automating it. I mean, a lot of it comes down to considering things as minimum viable product, right? What's the smallest mm -hmm. incremental change that I can do and can measure that this goes in the right direction or the wrong direction that is the least risky or the most well-known thing that can potentially have my desired effect for it. Yeah, to be able to recognize those things is a skill in and of itself, I think. And even to maybe think about 
complicated process or a risky process and be able to break it down. You know, having gone through, you know, problem solving in other areas or, you know, change management in other areas, that style of thinking like really helps. But when you're doing something at like, you know, multiple tens of thousands of, you know, individuals are affected, like then it's a slightly different <laughs> scale that that your your blast radius has, right? Yeah, honestly, uh, the first couple of times that I was deploying patches for this being 25,000 workstations where the bulk of these were generic shared machines that were on carts or on the whole wall in a hospital. I was like, oof, fingers crossed. Let's hope all of these patch and reboot properly like they should and have forever before. But this time I'm the guy smashing the button or I'm the one who's on call or because I'm the dude doing the patches, I'm the one doing the manual reboots on the servers at the time that the patches hit all of the other workstations overnight. And I hope my phone doesn't just start blowing up. Right. Cause at that point, if I have seven different hospitals that call me and say, Hey, our computers rebooted and now they're all black. Like, I don't know what I would do. Don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> right. What's my rollback strategy again? Yeah. Well, and, and that was, that was one of the first organizations where we didn't actually have we didn't have an official cab or anything, but because we had had a loosely defined process where the director of tech services wanted the primary and the secondary to be aware of whatever changes were going on and that we at least had a shared calendar of when the systems team and the network team and the folks who were doing all the medical imaging stuff had agreed upon when we're going to do these things so that we didn't have too many changes happening at the same time because sadly we had no maintenance windows for anything really. We had already had the concept in mind of change control, at least from the minimizing the blast radius perspective. But then when we had one major outage that I really thought was going to be a resume generating event for a handful of people, it solidified us having, having to have more of a change approval board just for the concept of yeah, what is our rollback plan and how badly can this go if it goes sideways? Like what's the most creative thing we can come up with for everything that could be the potential, you know, fallout from this. And that was a, a very different mindset that a lot of people had to have about how they were doing their job when it was not just how am I doing my thing in the quickest way possible for me to go home at the end of the day, but how many other people could I possibly affect in ways that I'm not necessarily certain are going to happen or not? I totally understand that. It's interesting because that type of job, you know, generally now that I think about it has a kind of like incremental deployment strategy where it's like, well, I'm going to test this on 10 machines, you know, around here. And then, you know, ones that I could actually walk to that are in the, the testing department. And then, here's like the first hundred and then here's the, the first thousand and here's, you know, the next 10,000 so on and so forth, which very, very closely maps to the DevOps and uh, site reliability engineering concepts of blue green deployment and kind of that, the, the canary pattern, I guess is really more what I'm thinking about where you're slowly rolling things out and then have the ability to slowly roll them back. If you know, you find something catastrophic you know, at a certain point or at a certain scale or, or anything like that. Nothing is really new, I guess. Yeah. The fact that that was working on workstations that were physical systems that were hardwired 
throughout a hospital that I may or may not be within an hour drive of or the other two facilities that were legitimately across Texas from me was kind of scary because the rollback plan, if everything went horrendously wrong, was that technicians would go in and grab as many workstations that we had pre-imaged on the benches in the IT department to go take to the critical areas of the hospital or we would go grab the borked machines off the wall, bring them back in, re-image them as quickly as possible and go put them back in place. And I was like, that is the worst phone tree I could ever imagine for things going sideways and calling everybody to just come in. We're going to image as many machines as we can as possible and go put it back into the hospital. But it was in the back of my mind every time we had a, a patching window because there was no other option that we had just because of the constraints of having that many systems spread throughout the hospital. Oh, that's right. You have a maintenance window. I keep on thinking about cloud and how you just have a simple rollback. Like, oh, I'll just kill that container. And just, you know, it's like, oh no, you can't do that on a desktop. <laughs> yeah. This, this was really the, here was the known Tuesday of the month that we like, it was, it was typically a week after patch Tuesday that we would deploy for my division because we never wanted to be the guinea pig for all the things, right? We would patch a handful of systems, but we would just hope that that was good enough testing for, you know, rolling out to 10 to 100 systems and then rolling out to 25,000 and just fingers crossed it'll work. But it was the, we just had a date on the calendar that everybody knew that at 2 a.m. on this Tuesday night rolling into Wednesday morning was when all of the systems had their automatic reboot and... I was always on because of the fact that I was doing the manual patching at the server so that I was available in case things went sideways. But there was sometimes a different person that was on call that a handful of times I would get notes from them ahead of time. Like, I'm going to sleep. I better sleep through the night and I better not get any phone calls. And I was like, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, fingers crossed, no doubt. So John mentioned this concept of rollback strategy. I think that's a fascinating term. And I think that it's something that maybe we keep in mind when we decide to specialize more. So I'm curious, Joe, because you, you did eventually did decide to work for a technology vendor. So I'd like to hear a little bit about that story and if you had any rollback strategy in mind as you went through that process. Okay, hate to uh, cut it off right there, but um, we are going to have to save some of the remainder for a third episode. I think something that jumped out at me, Nick, just before you know, I forget, is that idea of a canary deployment that Joe was talking about. Is just canary deployment without the actual DevOps processes to have automated rollback, and you know the potential to to really break things at a, at a really large scale, really uh, rough situation. If you're going to get into that automation, you really want to have those full, like, you know, ephemeral VMs and, uh, and rollback processes. It, it actually, okay. You know, sorry to uh, kind of go off here, but 
the adoption of a change review board is kind of, now that I think about it, the opposite of DevOps. That's probably no real re- revelation to you know people who are immersed in that space. But the idea that like you really need to like strongly examine every single individual change and and see what's going to happen that that really only happens in a situation where you you can't have an automated rollback that you trust. I don't know. Does that make sense? I think it does make sense. It also indicates that things are pretty risky in regard to big changes to the environment. Not that changes aren't risky, but it to me is also an indication that the organization really wants to de-risk those big changes, especially in a hospital. I mean, I could see that for sure. Yeah, definitely understandable. One of the things that stood out to me was starting as a generalist. Joe says he started as a generalist and then he slowly started to get more specialized. I can't help but think of Range by David Epstein and that this starting as a generalist made him even better at his specialty. I thought it was great to hear that his specialty aligned with something that he was interested in and it was kind of an aggregate of past skill set current skill set and skill set that he wanted to have (laughs) interestingly enough the the opportunity came to him it was a teammate that thought he'd be great to take over this particular project or operation of SCCM in this case, and managing the patching of desktops. And something else that struck me as interesting is that organization structure and whatever standards are in place may actually be a determining factor in whether you are a specialist who can only touch a couple of systems versus to being a subject matter expert in a specific area, but still being able to go and and help out with other projects and other systems. Yeah, that's a pretty cool insight. That that makes a lot of sense to hear and then have that reaction and then have that digest. Very cool. I also really enjoyed hearing about community as a lifeline for help with new technologies. Joe got encouragement from the community on what to do. And as he was implementing this newish technology into the organization where he worked, he had a place that he could go for help a place outside his organization that didn't have that specialty in-house. That's something we we have to remember as we ride these technology waves, I think. Yeah, if you don't have that expertise in-house, you have to find a place where you can educate yourself and find some peers about things. It's a really interesting point. I think uh, the, that probably needs to go into like some you know general advice about riding technology waves you know that you're like way out ahead of the wave if there's no community and nobody really to support you in your journey of exploration. You might be out too far ahead unless that's where your comfort zone is. So really think about maybe finding that community as part of riding that technology wave. If there's no community, it's going to be much, much harder. Maybe you build that community and make a name for yourself that way. Yeah, it's a good point. Also a good point. Well, I think that's it for that segment, John, and all the topics we had planned. Anything pop into your mind while we talked before we get out of here and let the anxiety build for part three? 
<laughs> no. Just a reminder again that we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter at Nerd Journey. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore for John White at V Journeyman, aka Daddy John, signing off. Adios. Sorry, I didn't know if you had a comment on that. I wanted to wait. I did. I I just set it with mute on. And it was just like a back and forth <laughs> That'll thing. That'll do it. Yeah. So yeah. here's, it was my, a great here's comment. my reaction. I just didn't hear it. Ha, 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 ha.